Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAGAFTRAFOUND. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the SAG Actors Foundation's Conversations at Home program. I'm Jazz Tanke, Senior Artisans Editor at Variety. And before we're joined by our guest today, I want to let you know that the SAG Actors Foundation is a nonprofit organization that relies entirely on donations to provide emergency assistance and free educational programs to SAG Actors artists. This conversation is made possible thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Over the past year, the foundation has given over $6.5 million in COVID relief to more than 7,000 performers. If you are a sag after artist and need help, please ask. And if you can help, please give. Information can be found in the description of this video. And thank you for your support. And without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Frankie Faison. Frankie, hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being here. I mean, your career spans were over five decades. So this is going to be a fascinating insight into, into those five decades. Um, <laughs> let's just go all the way back. Like, where did your love of performing begin? Like, what were those early memories? It began as far back as I can remember, to tell you the truth. I mean, I just... Uh, it all began maybe in the church, maybe, because I was, um, you know, very much Sunday school. I was doing all the little pageants and things. And and I loved to, I was an oddball creature who liked to actually stay and listen to the to the sermon by the minister. I was African Methodist Episcopalian. And they're long services. They could be two hours. But I loved seeing him up in the pulpit speaking and being so dynamic and having everyone listen and to being so free and engaging everyone. And then it carried over into, into elementary school. And then it carried over in elementary school. I was uh, voted most loud and boisterous. So my teachers decided that I should use that in the school plays and, and over the PA system. And so I always had a comfort in front of people. And I was always encouraged to um, to use that comfort for the good. And uh, then in high school, I started doing plays there. And I just, you know, just fell in love. I was just hooked. I love to watch television. I had a very vivid imagination. I love watching films. I just, it, it always seems like something I wanted to do ever since I can remember. And then I just kept on moving forward in that saying, it's interesting and good when you know a, a career path and you and you and you stick to it, it makes it makes things a lot easier. I think sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you talk about you know the church sermons, which, as you said, you know they can't. They're not ten minute sermons. They can go on for like thirty minutes, an hour. Uh, there is there is no yeah. time, right? There's no time nope. limit. Right. Like those are pretty much performances in themselves, right? 
you are ca- you've got a captive audience and the the energy like what do you is there anything you remember from those sermons i'm just fascinated to to hear that I, i'm a very religious person i was thinking about becoming a minister before i was thinking about becoming an actor because that's how that's how you know impressed impressed i was with that and it I remember everything about it. I remember remember mostly it being about love, the teaching lessons of love and patience and understanding. And I think those things have driven me and helped me and helped to propel me throughout my career. I mean, they are always there. That spiritual, religious thing is always there with me. And I'm always trying to to do the right thing. I'm always trying to 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 not disappoint people by my actions so um that's um that's like i think the key the biggest key to who frankie fazon is as a person and as an actor yeah and you mentioned like the school plays like you know everybody's appeared in a school school play mm. were you always volunteering or were you picked for roles like which way did that they just picked me i mean because it was just a natural mix i mean they needed someone there it was me it was always me i was a leading guy and all this you know you know from elementary school on through high school you know they just i was the go to the go to guy so i never had to worry about that they sought me out and um they was they were always so very encouraging you know to you know for me to use that talent and um i i i did i felt very comfortable being in front of people and i felt very comfortable sharing stories and and just being crazy just being <laughs> being who i am you know a lot of people feel uncomfortable when they have to stand in front of their class and speak and this and that and i'm just running to at every instant to talk more to take you know to take to take over so yeah you studied drama and you know you you went into you graduate from new york university's graduate acting program mm. when you tell your parents you want to be an actor what's the reaction what do they say to you well i come from a working class my father was an international longshoreman who only went to 6th grade my mother was um, a late bloomer she became a nurse's aide she started nursing but she only went to 7th grade and and they were working class they knew nothing about this thing called acting in theater i mean they'd seen me do plays and stuff and you know on that smaller level but when i said i wanted to go on and then pursue it in college they had no idea but they were always 100% supportive i mean i remember people saying to me uh, frankie what are you going to do um uh what's your backup plan i said i know backup plan this is what i'm going to do i'm going to be an actor and my parents they just sat there and they smiled they delighted in it they but they had no understanding at all about this journey that i was about to partake so um and my father had me when he was 50 so he was well into his 60s and you know when i started really getting into this stuff but they always were there one of the most fond memories is the th- the thing that really made them really understand what acting was and what it meant for me to be a serious actor is my first play in New York City and this the small theater the public theater it was a little small theater very intimate in the round kind of and you have to walk across the stage to 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 
to get to anywhere. I mean, it's, it's really that intimate. And I was doing this play called Andrew and I had to, and I dropped my mother and father off in the audience. I was perfectly normal. But in the play, I opened the play as this deranged drunk, you know, cursing and swearing and just going crazy. And, um, and, and I didn't tell my parents because I liked, you know, I wanted them to see to have the organic experience. So I'm down, the guy is, it, it, it stayed so that the guy finally tackles me and pins me down on the stage, you know, and I'm going around there screaming, where's Andrew? Because that's the name of the play. And I'm cursing and swearing and drinking. And, I, and all of a sudden, because they had to walk across the stage to get to me, these two people walked across the stage. It was my mom and my dad. And they, I look up, and they're looking down at me in the play, and they're saying, we didn't raise you to be like this. What are you doing? You know, you know they were just, <laughs> they were so taken in the moment. And the young man, the usher, he says, um, Mr. and Mrs. Faison, um, he's acting in the play that's not who he really is so they sort of crawl back to their seats and it was most most memorable moment for me but for them it must have been a, it must have been a horror show so oh, but they, my God. they always embrace whatever they say you be what you want to be we have you we're we're behind you 100 percent, which i am very grateful for yeah what what a memory though and to have that's that it. support okay. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with the audience today. And um, then, you know, you appeared with James Earl Jones in King Lear. No, I, James Earl Jones was my, I mean, you know, when I was coming up, there weren't a lot of, you know, a lot of dark faces that we could, uh, you know, grab, you know, grab onto as our role models. And James Earl Jones was certainly one of mine when I first came to New York in 1970, no, 68, between senior, junior and senior year of college, I got to study at the Circle in the Square. And I got the, I had the privilege of watching James Earl Jones because I was an apprentice there. I got to watch the show, he and Ruby Dee and, um, and uh, perform and after a few gods play Bozeman and Lena with Zate Mackay. And I got to watch these three amazing actors every night. And I saw James Earl Jones and it was just like, uh, you got to be kidding me, man. This is, this is the real deal. And immediately I became, I became enamored of him as a person and of his career. And then later when I went to NYU, he came and he got, to direct me in a play there, which was amazing for me to just be working with this giant in this industry. And then after that, I um, got chosen to participate in the production of Fences, the legendary production of August Wilson's play Fences, directed by the late, great Lord Richards. And I played James Earl Jones's brain-damaged brother, and from there, I mean, it was just to work with the man every night and to share the stage with him, his generosity and giving. And I, I learned so much from him um, about how to carry myself as an actor and as a performer and as a human being as well. And I got a chance to work with him in uh, several other films. And, um, and uh, it's just, he is my, he's one of my go-to guys. 
Yeah. What is the greatest lesson he taught you or that you learned from just watching him work? Generosity. To be generous in your craft and in your work. Because on the stage, he was the most generous and most giving human being you could possibly imagine. It was never about him. It was about us. And it was mm -hmm. about the project. He's a great collaborator and, and he, will, he will test you. And, but if you test him, he appreciates and applauds that. So I learned from Mr. James Earl Jones, generosity. And I, it's a lesson that I try to pass on to every actor that I ever work with or come into contact with. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, diversity, you know, you know, seeing James on stage and at work and, you know, what was that like, you know, working in theater back then, like, back then, like talk about like the challenges you had when you were like auditioning for, for parts and finding your way in, in theater. Well, I feel like I was thrown under a lucky charm or something, I guess. You know, I never have felt stressed in this industry, uh, be it an audition or be, or be it a performance or anything. I've never felt that. I never felt the, uh, you know, there was a sort of like a backlash. You know, we as black artists, we always said that, you know, that, there was too little work um, and that the way people treated us and we weren't, but I know I don't ever remember experiencing that because I always thought of myself as an actor first and black second. I'm, I just happened to be an actor who was black. I mean, it's obvious, it's apparent that I'm black. You look at me, you see that. So I never, never, I was never crippled or sidelined by that aspect of who I was. So I think that that helped me in a, a, a tremendous amount. And also, I prepared, I studied, I trained at least 13, 14, 15 years before I did my first professional play. So whenever people ask me what they should do if they want to become a professional actor, I say, well, if you don't want to be a run-of-the-mill Joe, if you don't want to be, you know, sandwiched into a box, you know, squished into a box, you know, where you're not, get some training. And the training is the best thing that I ever did. It was very tough. It was, a, I know, formative years, four years in undergraduate in Illinois Wesleyan University in theater, and then three years following that at graduate work at New York University. And I'll share a story. It's because I... When I left Illinois Wesleyan University, I was the star guy. I mean, I was like in all the productions. I was like highly touted. And, you know, everybody told me how great I was. And I felt great. And the training, it kicked in. I thought I was wonderful. And so then I'm going to go to the Big Apple and take them by storm. And so my acting teacher, a man by the name of Harold Augustine, may he rest in peace, wonderful coach and acting instructor, he uh, told me to apply to NYU so that I could study under the great late Lord Richards. And so I went there, and I, but I'm still a very cocky guy. You know, I'm like, I got, look, I don't even need this anymore. I'm like, just go and do that. <laughs> so I get to NYU. I audition, get in the program. It's a three-year program. And then when you're there in the program, you can't do any professional work outside. 
And so I get there and I'm thinking that maybe it was a two-year program at most. I did not have three years to waste because I'm ready to just hit the Broadway lights. I'm ready to get hot. So this little guy, Lord Richards, he was a small man in statue, but huge and everything else. So I go into him after the first week there and I said to him, excuse me, Mr. Richards, but um, I... I'm Frankie Faison. I don't have time for three years. Um, I'll give you maybe a year. I mean, you know, and I want to work, blah, 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 cocky. And he looked at me, the little man behind his desk with his glasses, bicycles on, and he looked up and he said, well, because hmm. he listened. He listened very well. He taught me how to listen too. He says, well, you have a choice. You can stay here and abide by the rules of this program, which is a three-year program. Yeah. Or you can just turn around and let the door hit you right where it delivered you in the back. And I said, whoa, how can he talk to me that way? Does he know who I am? But it was like, okay, I decided to stay, which was the best thing in the world. I found out later that I almost got kicked out my first year because I was too arrogant and too cocky. And the people, you know, say that, you know, and they don't need that. So that acting program, that training, it gave me the backbone of who I am as an actor. And it made me free enough to know that when I went out there, I could compete with anybody. I didn't have to be backed into a stereotype. I wanted to do all kinds of work. I wanted to do the classics. I wanted to do street. I wanted to do everything. But I did not want you to to put me in a box and say, you know, he can only do this. And so that's why I've always been very careful about the kind of roles that I choose to do. I will not be put into that. And the only reason I won't be put into it is because of the training. Amazing. I, I love that. So, you know, theater, and then you, ha you started, you, you know, you segued into TV, completely different world. <laughs> Was yes. it? Yes and no. It was because finally you're making some money, <laughs> but also, you know, it's, it, people are always asking me, say, what's the difference between acting on stage or acting in film and television? I'm always saying, the heck if I know, because I don't change anything about me. I may speak quieter in a more intimate way when I'm doing, you know, film or television, but I mean, the training, the instrument, I mean, the work is the same. So um, I did segue into doing television and it was um, it was necessary. First, but first I started off by doing commercials. I did a whole bunch of, you know, I did hundreds of commercials. I was very lucky because I could do the commercials and they would uh, finance me doing theater, which I was able to continue to do the theater. And um, even doing the commercials, there's a lesson. I mean, there's so many lessons I've learned in in this long career one I learned was I finally got a chance to shoot a commercial they cast me as this commercial as an extra so I'm doing this commercial as an extra and I'm like I'm like a trained actor who knows how to do it I know I know how to act and the guy over there who is the lead in the commercial you know he's he's not you know he's not trained the way I, I know he wasn't trained the way I was but anyway he's and so we do this stuff and we do it. I'm scared to talk to people. And they say, well, da, blah, blah. And then I learned about residuals. And I say, wait, 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 whoa. You mean that I'm 
doing this work that I'm doing. He's doing the work that he's doing. He's going to be getting residuals every time they show it. And I'm not going to be getting anything. It didn't sit well with me. I was like, well, you know, no, that was not going to fly with me. So it was at that point I decided I was never going to do uh, extra work. And not that there's anything against doing extra work. I just said, I'm, I want to be over there. I want to be that guy getting the residuals. So fortunately enough, I was able to have a very, very um, long and lasting um, commercial career as well. So, um, and that helped me to segue easier, to move easier into television because, you know, that's, I'm working in front of a camera. So it was good. And so then I started doing bits and pieces in television. I was, you know, I was told, you know, uh, by my first wife, um, she said to me, she said, Frankie, you're not television material. You'll never be able to do television. And I hate for somebody to tell me that I'll never be able to do something because I'm going, I got to prove you wrong. So I started and I finally got a TV series. It's this series called True Colors, shot way back in the uh, late 70s. And it was about an interracial family. And, um, and it, was, it was beautiful. It was, I thought it was groundbreaking. I, I thought we were going to be the next all in the family. It had that potential. But I had to go out to California, which I had never been there before. And I had to do television. And, but before that, I had done some soap opera stuff. And I was like horrible. I mean, I just, I couldn't do it because I don't like to just learn lines and just say lines. It just doesn't mean anything to me. So, um, but doing the TV thing, it was great. And I was there doing that for a year and a half before I got fired from that or released or whatever you want to say. There was a problem between me and my leading lady. And so it led to them just sending me back home and the uh, the producer um, of this thing creator he was very sad because he was a big fan of mine he loved me and he loved what I was doing but I'm a serious theater person doing this thing that I want to be uh, all in the family kind of power and mm. they want is television they want needed to do that and be funny and blah 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 and it was a comedy a sitcom to boot so one day I'm home doing a hiatus and get this call and he's saying I'm the hardest thing in the world I have to do is, but I'm going to have to let you go. And you've been replaced. But the thing about it is I had asked to be replaced earlier in the year. I said, please, I don't want to do it anymore. I just bring somebody else in. I'm the wrong guy, but they wouldn't do it because the power of Hollywood and television. But anyway, they replaced me. And the good thing about that is my contract said, I get paid for all episodes done. So for the whole second half of the of the tele, of the season for this series, they paid me money to go home and do the thing that I wanted to do anyway, which is theater. So there yeah. I got to do some, some marvelous, some marvelous things. So you just never know why, where a thing is going to lead you. If you stand by your principle, I think you'll land on your feet in a good way. And that was yeah. a lesson that for me. I love that. Being able to do theater and, you know, TV and then movies. Like, how did you juggle between or how did you decide there's this role up for theater versus this role in movies or this on TV? Like, how do you start? So we're talking like early 80s now, right? Mm-hmm. How do you start deciding which fork in the road do you take your career? It's all about balance. 
I was married with three children. So the scale is going to tilt a little bit towards the things that will bring in more money. But at the same time, there's this passion in me for theater that's even here today. I've never, I will never lose it. I can't, that's the thing that drove me to be in this business. So it was always about that. I would always try to do the film things to give me enough financial stability to do theater and also give me enough financial stability to make sure my family is not homeless and starving on the street. So it, it, was, it was always about that for me. And I have been very fortunate in able to, to do that. I, I always call myself, the, there's a term in baseball, it's called the 40-40-40 club. And that's when you hit 40 home runs, you, 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 you steal 40 bases and you bat an astronomical number. And I feel like that in a way in this profession because I'm always telling actors, be versatile, be flexible, be able to do everything because if they stop one thing, you got to have someplace else to go. So if they, if they go on strike in theater, you got commercials and you got film. If you're on strike in film, you got theater, you got industrials, you got always be able to be able to bring, bring in money from, find some kind of money from what you, your talent, because you train and you're prepared and you can use that talent and people want to use you for that. So I call myself the 40, 40, 40 guy because I've done well over 200 commercials, well over 200 radio, I mean, you know, voiceover stuff, well over a hundred films and well over a hundred television things when you put it all together. So I just, to me, I, I feel very proud of that accomplishment. Not that it can get me anything. The only thing it gets me, it keeps me working consistently. And that's what I have always worked. I'm, I've been fortunate enough never to have to do anything other than, than then make a living from the industry that I love. And even though there were times when I was like rolling pennies, even eating beans, doing the actors, you know, the actors starvation thing, I did that even with family. But they stuck there with me and I stuck there with it and things worked out okay because I always believed in myself. I believed that I am, that all the time I spent cultivating my talent, I couldn't let that go to waste. There had to be a reason, a purpose for it. I was going to ask you, like, what what motivates you when you are, you know, having the beans, like, you know, when you're at the bottom of the barrel? My story is that I'm a great cook, you know. <laughs> I know how to cook. I know how to make a meal. <laughs> I, love, I love to do things. I love to just engage in, you know, athletics and do stuff. I never felt, even though when I was at the bottom of the barrel, I never felt that I was really at the bottom of the barrel, really per se, because I always knew that right around the corner in this industry, there's a big paying job, you know, if you can just hang in there long enough. And so um, every time that I got to the bottom of the barrel, something would come along, a commercial or a film or something that would bring in, you know, 
a substantial amount of money that will make me get back on my feet again. So I never really felt like I was at that bottom per se. I just uh, felt very, and I've always had a very supportive family. And, uh, you know, and I could, you know, and I knew they wouldn't let me, they would bring me, they would make sure I had food and a roof over my head some kind of way. So that's, that's, I think it's very important to have a good support system behind me if you're going to be in this business. And that means um, wife, kids, uh, mother, father, friends, everything. And I've always had great support system. Well, you know I'm going to talk to you about coming to America. Before we get into the Spike Lee and do the right thing and working with Spike, you know, fellow NYU alumni, but, you know, I think people would hunt me down if I didn't talk to you about coming to America and playing, you know, the landlord. Um, what do you remember? Talk about getting that part, auditioning. Amazing. Now, this is an amazing story, too. <laughs> you know, amazing stories. I don't know. This I love it. I was doing fences on Broadway, and the director John Landis had come to see the play, and he just thought there was a bunch of talented people up there. And so he, you know, he had us come in and audition. And I went in and auditioned. And um, you know, this was the first big time kind of film that I'm you know, I think that I it was big time in a way. I had done right time before, but that was not, this was commercially big time, I think. So I went in and auditioned for him. And I auditioned for one of the guys to have a very small part, the guys who, the, who, the, who the king gives them money on the street. And I did it great. I knocked it out of the ballpark, so to speak. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm like, I can do that. That's fine. So I did that, and he gave me that job. My dear friend, who was supposed to play the landlord, he was cast to do the landlord. Oh, no, what happened before that is they needed to cast Mr. the guy who played um, the role that John Amos played, who was McDowell. I went in, and I had a terrific audition for that role. But they thought I was too young. They wanted someone a little older, a little bit more established. So he, but I mean, I just, I was doing all kinds of, I'm not an actor being free. I was free because I was hungry. I wanted to do that part and I wanted to play that role. So I went in and I just, just really knocked it out. And they say, well, we not going to give you this part, but we'd like for you to be one of the old guys, you know, they give money to. And I say, fine, thank you. Thank you. But then he couldn't, when my friend could not do the part because he had a commitment in another film, they remembered my audition from that. And they said, well, let's give the role of the landlord to him. And that's a lesson that you just never know. You don't go in and audition. You think you're going in and auditioning for a role. You're going in to show your wares to show people the talent that you have and you never can tell what will happen. And I have another story we'll get to later in the interview, I'm sure, that we'll piggyback on this again. But that's how I got that role. And it was just, um, it was just, it was just one of those, I, mean, I knew I had that landlord in me. 
I mean, I just, and it was very well written. I knew that guy, man. I knew him from my hometown in Newport News, Virginia. I got him. I, I got him. Parts of my father was in him. I see, I got this guy. And so that's where, um, that's where that came from. But now keep in mind, you're talking about a guy who trained, studied to become a classical actor. And then all of a sudden, my first role of notoriety was that of the landlord. And so when people would come by, everybody was thinking I'm a comedian. I'm not a comedian. I'm a serious actor. And everybody was coming by and would say, oh, you're great. And they would be quoting the lines from coming to America. And I would always like, no, no, no. I'm a it took me years to really begin to appreciate what that means if the if, if, if the community at large, if they accept you and embrace you for something you have done, it means you did a good job. You're doing something right. So be grateful. Don't don't be so pigheaded and stubborn that you're going to let that get in the way of giving you more momentum to do better, better bodies of work. So eventually I embraced that role and I still do to this day as being one of the um, it was more fun shooting that, as much fun as shooting just about anything else. I've had some other great fun roles too, but that was that was really that was really the beginning of that. And I always shudder when people say, Oh, you're a comedian, you're funny, you're I'm not funny, I'm a serious actor. <laughs> so. Do you still get people coming up to you today quoting lines from coming to well, you know, oh. in this world? All the time, generation after generation after generation, yeah. Because that was a film for all times. People love that film, and it just, uh, yeah. And, and I embrace it. I love it. It just, yeah. it, it makes me, makes my heart proud. Because I know that's not the definitive thing as to who I am and to what my talent is. So I'm, I'm good with it. Yeah. What was your that turning point for you personally? Because like you said, you know, it's like, well, I'm a trained actor. This is what I do. I do serious work. All of a sudden, people are recognizing you for comedy, right? And as you mm. said, you know, it, that there's a reckoning, reckoning that you have to have within yourself. Like, what was that process? Because I think a lot of people would want to know, like, the, the coming to pe- terms with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I was you know, always at peace with it because it just, like I say, immediately it made me say, hey, they noticed me. People noticed me. People start calling me by my name now and then. I'm like, whoa. I say, okay. Because I never went out to become a famous actor. I never wanted to become a famous actor. I wanted to become a good actor who did good work. And I always figured that if you become a good actor who, who does good work, all the riches and everything else will fall upon you because people will pay you money, good money to do that. So it was... It was about that for me. It was about just accepting that and being able to move forward with it because it just, um, I'm, I'm, I try to be humble enough to say, thank you. This is what my mother and my father taught me to thank you for any kind of comment, compliment that comes my way. I mean, there is no such thing as a bad compliment as far as I'm concerned. It's like, it's, someone is sharing enthusiasm and joy over something that you, some kind of thing that you brought them. And to me, that 
means the world. That goes back to the church and all that stuff, trying to find appreciation. So I felt like I had done something right. So it was no, it was no transitional point for me. It was just, and I knew deep down inside what I had to offer as a serious actor as well. It was, you know, I just, I mean, I did, uh, I did that, that film after coming off a, a bunch of plays that were just magnificent and were just very dramatic to just, you know, from, from the classics to, to plays that were just contemporary, that would just break your heart. Plays about AIDS, father and son relationships, uh, plays about wife and husband relationships. And I had done that. I had, I had that. And some of these plays you might recognize, some of them you may not. But I was fully confident as to that part of who I was. The other part was, you know, I had to just, and I never thought of myself as a comedic actor because I don't go out there and try to be funny. I go out there and try to be real. And if I'm being real and it's funny, then you're funny. <laughs> that's the way it is. And that's always been my approach to the work. Because if you're trying to be funny, you can be, it, it, it's not, it's not, uh, that's not what I want. So that was, it was transitional period was good for me. So then you get to work with one of the greatest filmmakers today and of all time, Spike Lee, do the right thing. You know, back yeah. back before, you know, one of his earliest films, but again, you know, this is put Spike on sit really solidified Spike. Tell us about that audition for for that. And <laughs> what he said to you about Coconut Sid. Okay, Spike, I love Spike. I just think, you know, I just think that uh, he's amazing. What he's done for, you know, us in this industry is off the chart. Spike came, <laughs> Spike was at NYU behind me. He was like, you know, I was maybe a senior. He was a freshman. And, you know, he was first year and I was going my way out. And uh, I didn't remember him. He's, he remembered me. He remembered that. He had had a conversation with me in college, you know, and I just, you know, I'm upperclassman. I'm, you know, I, I didn't remember it, but I'm, you know. So he called me in for this role and do the right thing. And he didn't have me audition. He just offered me the role. He said, I want you to play this role in Coconut Sid. And he said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, no, I said, don't <laughs> you know I was at NYU you know I was there I was there and I told you I said if he says I'm one day I'm gonna put you in one of my movies and this is what I'm doing now and I said oh isn't that endearing I mean it was just more precious than anything you know he just he was so proud to have been able to keep his word and put me in that movie and he was so proud that I could bring the talents that I brought to it because it was, you know, it was a mixture of different kinds of experiences in this film. And I, you know, was one of the ones who had had probably a little more than a lot of the people in it, not everyone, but a lot of them. And I was a good balance. 
And he, um, Spike just pretty much, he just gave me the role, gave me the script, gave me the character, and just stayed out of the way. He was just pretty, he was pretty confident in my training and in my talent to be able to find that guy, all of the corner guys. It was just like magic. We rehearsed a little bit, but it was just never, never much to say, you know, except good job, good job, cut, let's move to the next thing. You know, he had a lot of younger, untrained actors that he had to deal with in this film. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of folks that uh, had never worked before the camera before uh, that much. And he was new to them, you know, and they've gone on to some amazing careers, but that's what that was about. That was a very, um, I love, I love those guys on the corner with me, Paul Benjamin, may he rest in peace. And Robin Harris, may he rest in peace. They were just, it was just quite a treat to be that corner trio signifying just uh, in just doing that. And I never thought of that as being funny. Robin was the one who could be funny because he was a comedian, but it was a very memorable moment for me in film. What did you take from working with Spike Lee on a spy on his set? Work ethic. Work ethic. He's a very hard working guy and he has a vision and he and he's very clear, clarity, clarity. He knows what he wants and he knows he doesn't get in the way. He just he lets he lets the he hires accordingly to what he wants and he trusts. So I think clarity and trust is one of the things that I learned, you know, from that set, you know. And he ran a good set. You know, just really people were just, you know, he was just very open, available, collaborative, very collaborative. And um, that's why I think that we were able to get a production like Do the Right Thing, that film that will stand on its own even today. To this day, it still stands the test of time. And it's like it's a must see to people if they still haven't. you know, if they haven't seen it. And then, you know, I'm going to move to Silence of the Lambs because you also, you know, you appeared in, I believe, all four adaptations of the Thomas Harris books. You know, I think that is, you're the only actor to actually do that. Um, Anthony didn't do that. (laughs) Not even that, the the great Sir Anthony Hopkins. I mean, thriller, you know, completely different genre now. Um, but talk about that and the appeal of reading that script for Silence of the Lambs. And like, do you know, I know this is one of those questions, but like, what was the, what stood, did you read the book and then seeing the script? Like, what was it about you that was like, yes, I've got to go forward for this role? Or Well, I did read the book, um, but I read the other book first, Manhunter, because that's the first one that I did, and I did that, and I just, you know, fell in love with um, with the writing, uh, Thomas Harris, I believe, mm-hmm. and um, I love this character, Barney, but I didn't play Barney in Manhunt, I played a, a different, I played a detective in that one, but then I played Barney in the prior, the, the last three, 
that were done. And I read this script. And here again, I mean, like I, I feel like I have so many characters in this body of mine. And I'm, you know, that's the thing I'm always telling actors, you know, you, you've got so many characters in you. Your job as an actor is to just find the thing that makes that one character work and get everybody else out of the way. And then you'll be able to, you know, to realize that and be successful with that character. Barney registered with me in every way that you could imagine. He was just, he was kind, he was understanding, he was respectful. And those are all my life lessons. Everything goes back to my childhood, my lessons learned in church and in school from my teachers and everything. So I went in to read, to read for um, Mr. Jonathan Demi. And uh, I went in there and I'm saying, like, I, <laughs> I was just did this other movie, Manhunter. You got to cast me in this thing with, as in silence. I mean, and if you do, I'm going to move your name to the top of my resume. It's my favorite director. I mean, I'm just, I'm just talking. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I was going crazy, but I really wanted that role. And so I read for it. And I think I did a very good reading. And he saw something in me that he thought would be good for this character. And he ended up casting me in that role. And uh, he was one of the kindest directors I've ever worked with. And, you know, he was just very, very great with from the top of the line, the highest, most visible actor to the walk on the guy day player I learned that from him and working with him and I learned working Barney just he became a part of me so much so that when they did the second film Hannibal traditionally when you do a role and you do it well and I thought I did Barney very well because people always I mean he wasn't a large supporting role in this film, but it was significant enough that people would recognize me and say, Barney, they would, you didn't call me by that name. You, would, you're, you know, you're great. So when Manhunter, when um, Hannibal came out, um, I wasn't offered the job. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. I, I am Barney. Nobody knows Barney better than me. Nobody. So I had to go in and audition for myself, is what I felt. And I was very upset about that at first. Ego, or whatever you want to call it, just didn't feel right. I felt like I should have been offered, I should have been given that respect. But they did Hannibal and they wanted high-scale visibility. And so they brought people in to read, you know, people who may have been a bump or two ahead of me as far as, you know, what visibility and all that. But I knew that no one could play Bonnie like me. So I had to go in there and fight for this role. So I went in and I, and I told the director, I said, look, I am Bonnie, you know. And he says, yes, yes, I know, but there are other people competing for this role. And there was a bunch of A-list, you know, character actors coming there reading for it. And um, I did my audition. 
And uh, I moved something in him enough for him to say, yeah, we want you, you we got to. And Thomas Harris liked me as that character. <laughs> I didn't think that that hurt, you know. But he liked what I brought, the sensibility, sensitivity that I brought to the character. So I ended up doing that one. And then when the third one came around, Red Dragon, I just, I was done. I just, you know, I said, enough. I don't, I knew Red Dragon story. And I'm like, I'm like, there's nothing in there for me. I don't want to do that. And so um, when the director came to ask me uh, to do that, I said, no. Like, what do you got? There's nothing in there for me to do. I knew the stories. And he created, he said, you have got to do this role because people associate you as Bonnie in this franchise and we'll create something. And so they did. And they created, you know, just enough to make sure that I was in that as well. So I was, um, I was very honored and very pleased. And people really think of Bonnie as part of this franchise. Yeah. And he, he is, um, it's hard to imagine it without, Barney now, but um, okay, let's talk about The Wire. You also, yeah, you're doing movies, you're doing TV, you're also doing TV series, you know, th- your careers, you're just adding to your incredible career. The Wire, you know, people are still discovering the show to this day, thinking, why did I miss the first time around? Like, share memories of that and the wire. The wire. Fascinating. You know, they always say, treat people with the kind of respect you want them to treat you with. You know, never get to think that you're so much better than someone else because they're in such a lower position than you are. I learned those lessons and I, I keep reiterating because those are the lessons that have driven me in my life. The wire comes along. And I initially I read for the tall, angular Lieutenant uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Daniels, you know, and I know I gave a good reading. And uh, but I think they thought that I was maybe not quite right or maybe a little too old to do that. So I went in and, and you know, and I didn't hear from him. I said, OK, well, I guess that didn't work. But a couple of weeks later, I get a call from my manager. He says, uh, they want you to play um, this guy, uh, Commissioner Burrell. I hadn't even remembered him. I hadn't even seen him. I didn't, you know, they want to offer you that role. You don't have to read for it. They want to offer you that role. But, you know, and I'm saying, okay. But my heart was set on doing Daniels, you know. But this came out, and I didn't know anything about it. And then I read the script, and I said, okay, this is a pretty good role, too. Yeah, I could do that. So I went in for my first meeting, table reading, all that stuff. And the guy who's directing and sort of like one of the um, co-crew, not, not he's producing, but he's really big on up the ladder of this thing. Sitting back there is this guy, and I look at him. And he's like, hmm, you don't remember me, do you? I'm See, no, I don't, because I meet so many people, you know. He says, Frankie, I was that PA on the set of, of True Colors, which was my first professional job. 
that I was a star of that show. And he said, you treated me with so much respect and you were always so kind, not just to me, but to everybody. And I never forgot that. And when this show came along and I got a chance to put you in it, I just jumped at the opportunity. And that's why you're here, aside from the fact that you have the talent to sustain, you know, to substantiate being here. But, you know, he said, I never forgot those kindnesses. And uh, that's why I think it's important. You don't do things like that because you want someone to come along and do that. You do them because they are the right things to do. You never should look at a person just because they are, yeah, you know, a gopher. They're running around grabbing coffee or something. Because people have intelligence and people have talent and you never know where they may end up. So always treat people with the same amount of respect that you would like to have them treat you with. And you never can tell when your wire story may come to pass. And the shooting the wire was just amazing for me. It was like right in my wheelhouse. It's like a theatrical piece. You shoot it. It was HBO was wonderful. You know, they're not, it's not like network television, you know, right? Just network television, the suits are all over you. And this, they left you alone and you could create. And The Wire was what really one of, of many, one of the real memorable episodics that I, you know, that I have done. I'm very proud to have been a part of that. So let's skip your incredible career. Let's skip to the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. What? Skipped over a lot of stuff. (laughs) I know. I know. You have have five decades. We put my way into that easily. (laughs) We need, I mean, we could have like a two, we need to do this as a two part to like break this up or like, you know, a five part, like, uh, you know, Frankie Faye's on by the decade. That would be a good series. Um, (laughs) But go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, um, You said about that, like, it was one of the most physically powerful and demanding works I've ever appeared in. It is such a powerful film, equally powerful performance. Uh, Talk talk about what you remember about, what did you know about the story before you got the script? And then getting that and prepping, getting into this world of Kenneth Chamberlain? First of all, I take all of my work so very seriously as an actor. I mean, I think that acting is a true profession that you have to, with the skills that you need to know and apply as if you were a doctor, a lawyer, any president or anything. It's like I take it very serious to the beyond serious. Every role that I've ever played, I give that kind of commitment to. But this was kind of a definitive role for me in a way because I got to show my wares from the beginning to the middle to the end. And all actors and artists, they always say, 
I want to do something with some meat so that I can really, you know, but you can have meat in doing a, you know, one day on a, on a, on a anything, you know, you can't, but this fell into place in such an amazing, I do, you know, I talked to you earlier. We didn't talk about, I do tons of independent films, small films, because I'm a collaborator. I love collaboration. And they seek me out and I'll work with first time directors, first time writers. I just, if the script is good, I want to be there and I want to do it. This script came to me and these, um, this producer and writer, David Medell and Enrico um, Natal, they were very new in a way to, to the big scale of this. They've done little things. I didn't know either one of them. I got this script and I read it and it just from the very first moment that I read the script, maybe page two, page three, I'm like, I have to do this. I'll do it. They want me to do it. They call for me. They, they have very little money, you know, and I'm at the point now in my career where, you know, I can command a couple of dollars <laughs> more than normal. So, but, and, but my manager will attest to the fact that that's why a lot of stuff he doesn't even like to show me because he knows that if I read it and I get involved, connected to it, I'm going to want to do it. And I'll go do it for peanuts, which is basically what I did this film for. <laughs> and, but it has, but more than that, I did it for the fact that I thought this was a very challenging role. I didn't know anything about Kenneth Chamberlain, nothing, even though this incident occurred about an hour from where I live. And, you know, I live in New Jersey. This was in White Plains. But I read it and I, um, I said that they worked out the negotiations so that I could go and do it and I would be fine. I knew it would be. You know, I'm not going to have the luxurious trailer. And I'm not going to have the luxurious meals. I know I'm not going to have all of those things. This is going to be like um, off, 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 off Broadway production. But I knew, and then I, I said, yes, I'll do it. So I went went down to meet these guys in in Illinois where we filmed, and I took a liking to them. You know, for no particular reason reason. I didn't see, you know, they just, they were, everybody was so committed. And I knew that I had to be even more committed because I'm the pivotal character in this thing. And I've got to, I've got to drive this engine home. I've got to be there every, I shot this in eight, eight days. And I shot this with no one there, but me and the door. Everything is on the other side of the door until the very oh. last when they come through. I shot it under that circumstances. I was shooting long days. I was exhausted and I had to stay. I've never been, because I'm, I'm like to be a fun guy on a set. I, I do. I'm, I'm just a clown. That class clown thing has followed me <laughs> even there. So I like to have fun. But I can always, you know, my style of acting, I can always know that this is the fun part, but when I got to go to the work part, I move over to this section. And I can do that pretty easily. You know, and most of most things that I've done, 
when I need to be focused and concentrated, I'm there. This is the first time I did that uh, method kind of thing where you're in the character from the very moment to the very end, from the very beginning of the filming to the very end. People didn't even know me. The director and the producer said, we didn't know who Frankie Faison was because all we ever saw was Kenneth Chamberlain. My wife, um, I've remarried and been with um, someone, been with someone for about five years, and her name is Samantha. I have to mention her name because she's the, <laughs> she's been there for me in such a way that she makes it easier for me to do the things that I needed to do. But she said she didn't recognize me, and she's not in the business. So. You know, she's a baker. She makes pies, <laughs> English, sweet and savory pies. She said for, for those, because I'm always trying to explain to her what I do as an actor. And she's seen it in many cases with me working on other film projects and stuff. But she's never seen me delve this deeply into it and stay into it for that longer period of time. And so that was my journey. And physically, you see the film is exhausting. It, was, it exhausted me, but I had to use that exhaustion because that was the exhaustion that I felt that Kenneth Chamberlain felt in his last 90 minutes on this earth before a policeman took his life with that gun. And it was, I, I knew the character as well. I felt so much of a connection with so many aspects of him. I wasn't in the military. I wasn't in the Marines. And I'm not suffering from heart thing. And I'm not, you know, a mental health person any more so than any other actor is. But I am connected to him, to his sounds, his work, everything. And David wrote such an amazing script. I never had to... I never met his family until afterwards, three or four weeks afterwards, after we finished filming. I met his son on the set about three quarters of the way through the filming, which was like on day six or seven for me. And, uh, but there are universal sounds, I believe, that no matter who they come from, they are the same. And those are sounds of laughter, sounds of joy, sounds of happiness, sounds of despair. Sounds of anger, sounds of sadness, sounds of fear. And all those things were part of who Kenneth Chamberlain was. And I didn't need to see anything or hear from anybody else because it was there in the richness of the script. And I was able to find it. And I'm just, uh, I love the film. All the actors are just brilliant in the film. Everybody just, um, it's, a, it's a film that should be seen in its appearance piece of love that um, it's a gift that we're given to learn from this you know it's it's my kind of work is why I came into this to do that kind of stuff it is an incredible script by um, David Medell so powerful just but watching it it's heartbreaking it's agonizing I mean you talk about going method for you know, for those eight days, how do you shake that off afterwards? Like the intensity of uh, of what you're going through as this character on screen. And like you said, you know, people didn't recognize who you are. They only saw Kenneth, you know, in, in you. And then it's like, that's a wrap. But you 
you know, it's not as simple as like shaking this person off as like I walk out the door. Talk about how you, that process. Every time I speak to someone, like I'm speaking with you now about that, he just, Mm. he starts creeping back in. He's there. I never get rid of him. I, I, I don't think I lose hardly any of the characters that I have ever played, but I can walk away from them. I can put them to the side. And um, it's like when, if you're in a calamity, a catastrophe, like a hurricane or earthquake or something like that, the people who are not there, they're like, oh my God. Oh, you're going, and you could be there. And you, it's just a bunch of wind blowing. It's just a bunch of rain. The earth shook and buildings fell, but we were okay. And I've experienced that from in, in all those ways. It's the same thing with this character. He was an earthquake. He was a volcano. He was an eruption in me. And when everybody else is seeing that and feeling those things, but he's... I'm, I'm, I'm the lucky one because I can get him out of me. I don't have to watch him. I have to pay the price when I watch the film, the screenings and stuff, because then it just, you know, I can see what, audience, I get the idea of what audiences might be feeling. But for me, I can just, I can let him go. And I think, I thought I had let him go at least about three or four days before I actually let him go. My wife says, no, he was there. We drove back from Illinois back to New Jersey. And she says, Kenneth, I'm riding with Kenneth Chamberlain. He was not gone, Frankie. He was there with you. And so um, eventually he goes. And the thing that also allows you to shake a character is to start working on another character, start doing something else. So I was fortunate enough to start doing a couple of other projects and I became engaged with them. And, um, but now that we're doing the press with Kenneth Chamberlain story, it keeps surfacing and I keep, I got to revisit him to be able to talk about and to be able to talk about experience. So Kenneth is alive and well in this old body of mine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know we've talked about your incredible body of work but was there any point, you know, so many times you, you, know, you see actors who suddenly decide to write a script or they want to direct or they move into pro- producing, like had that ever crossed your mind or were you just like, I'm perfectly happy doing what I do? I've always wanted to be an actor. I, I started out by saying, this is a good lesson for young actors as well, I started out by saying, I want to be the best actor who ever lived. You know how we all have that syndrome, wanting to be the best of everything. But, you know, pretty early into my career, I realized that that's wrong, Frankie. No, there's so many great actors out there. You don't want to be the best actor who ever lived. You want to be the best actor you can be and let the rest take care of itself. I never wanted to write. I never wanted to produce per se, because all of those things are full engagement positions. You got to commit yourself passionately to those things to be successful. And I'd spend so much time in my life 
preparing myself and committing myself passionately to acting, I'm very happy doing that. That's all I want to do. I'm very content doing it. I don't need to do, let those other people do that who want to do that and who can do it well. I'm very content and I've always been very content being an actor, doing the best that I can do. You've given some incredible advice during this conversation, but is there anything else you would advise the actors? Because they're all, you know, actors out there watching this, but any more thoughts? One thing, work. Work. It doesn't matter where. Don't think that something is too, too wrong for you to do. If you're going to be an actor, you got to work. you got to act. And you got to do it in front of people, not in front of a mirror, not in front of a self-tape or something. You've got to really work. So any kind of acting opportunity that invites you in, take advantage of it because you can learn from it. And you can also make a living from it. So that's the thing I would advise actors to do, work and be diverse, as diverse as you can do all aspects of it. And then there is no right or wrong and there is no beginning or middle end. There is no success or failure. You know, I went to school with people who didn't get past the door. They never even saw their way into the business. But they maybe found something else that they like to do in the industry. If you like the industry and you're committed to it, work. And when the opportunities present themselves, take advantage of them, whatever they may be. And always believe in yourself. Believe in yourself and what you are doing, you know, and uh, and hopefully things will fall into place for you, you know, whatever that means. Amazing. Frankie, on behalf of the SAG After Foundation, thank you so much for sharing your experience, your process, and your craft with your fellow performers. And thank you to the audience for tuning in for this incredible insight and dive into your career. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.